Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran, and 10 years ago in 2011, Padraig O'Toole and I started 10 by 9 in the Black Box in Belfast, and we love it. All our events are now on Zoom, so you can join in wherever you are in the world. You can find all our upcoming events and all the things you need to know about us and some things you don't at our website, 10by9.com. Now, there are three stories in this podcast for you, all told at our March event when the theme was viral. We had teamed up with the Imagine Festival of Politics and Ideas, and it was a wonderful evening. First up is first-timer Paul Brazel, who told this story from his home in England. It's just water off a duck's back. I'm a big boy now, I'll manage. I can just tune it out, it's fine. These were just a few of the lies I told myself and anyone who asked day after day after day. Four of us lived in the middle of a small arty town in a nice flat with a balcony overlooking the River Ouse. It had a great view of the pub car park on the opposite bank. It was a popular pub and in summer it was alive with animated conversation. Occasional folk singing and every now and then a school of Morris men or a drunken brawl. I can never tell those last two apart. I believe one of them involved more handkerchiefs. In winter, it was quieter. Just the muted conversation of smokers huddled under canopies and the crash of the emptying bottle bins. We still had the folk singing though. The river's tidal and filled with all manner of wildlife. Cormorants and gulls, heron, grey mullet by the thousand and even a seal or two. And for this summer, a trio of men in their late forties who looked like they may have made a questionable lifestyle choice or two. They'd acquired a rowing boat just after the first lockdown started and anchored it to a ring set in the car park wall where it would bob around, rising and falling, swinging back and forth with a tide until it succumbed to the weight of water entering through holes in its hull, whereupon it would sink to its rollocks and wallow around in the murky water. The boat was a dilapidated beige fiberglass thing. Like its owners, it looked like it had seen better days and had been round the block a time or two. The car park was empty, the pub shuttered, but these boys would turn up most days, sunshine and shower, sometimes on foot, sometimes in a 1994 Ford Mondeo, maroon metallic paint and optional body coloured bumpers, but always with a slab of cider. They'd empty the boat at low tide and then sit on the wall looking wistful as the river filled its banks, discussing how best to turn this floating bin into a craft capable of carrying them and their cider upstream in search of summer idyll. When I had the chance, when my housemate's passive aggressive presence, point in silence or hostile takeover of the communal area would allow, I'd sit on the balcony and watch as with a collection of mismatched tools, apparent disregard for the laws of physics and only a rudimentary knowledge of boats, they began their restoration project. I watched as they bashed the legs off two metal chairs they'd nicked from the pub and attempted to mount them on the wooden plank seat raising the boat's centre of gravity, causing it to almost capsize and heel crazily to starboard as they tried to row it upstream. I watched as they repaired the holes in the bottom of the boat with expanding foam. And again, a day later, when the foam plugs popped out like Prosecco corks as they boarded for another trip. I was in awe of their enthusiasm. It was never dampened by summer showers, failure or a surfeit of cider. They noticed me watching them and with a a deep nod of their head and a raising of their beverage, a standard male greeting, they welcomed me into their group as a socially distanced member. 
And in this time of enforced personal and medical isolation, I was happy to be included, however peripherally. They would shout across the river, telling me what they were doing, looking for approval and occasionally an opinion on their ill thought out repairs. I would reply with encouragement and advice while inwardly shuddering at their cack-handed abuse of tools and materials. I'd watch with a mixture of amusement and trepidation as they, a few cans into their afternoon libations, climbed up and down their jerry-rigged ladder or fished around in the shallows looking for whatever tool they'd dropped, anticipating a you've been framed style moment that never actually came. The sitcom went on for nearly three months. I began to give each event its own little tagline like they did in Friends. The one where Chandler hurts his back and discovers just how heavy a cubic metre of water is. The one where Joey invents new swear words to describe the bored teenagers who'd filled their boat with three boxes of damp Argos catalogues. The one where Ross screws his own trousers to the wooden seat. I was elated and disappointed on the day of their maiden voyage. Three men, two cans of cider and a multi-pack of Walker's crisps rode upstream in search of pastures new. I like to imagine them lying in a meadow somewhere, side by side, spotting familiar shapes in the clouds. By June, I'd had enough of my living arrangements. A pre-lockdown animosity, usually managed by everyone working and rarely crossing paths, had become unbearable. Four people confined to what felt like an increasingly small flat. One person's toxicity infecting an entire household. No chat, no music, no communal meals, just a sneaking back and forth between bedroom and kitchen and the twisted knot of anger trepidation and irritation whenever she walked into the room. The constant feeling that somehow, somewhere, I was doing something wrong. I envied the guys with their boat, the communal project, an escape, an anecdote in Potentia. A couple of years previously, I'd found myself needing accommodation in a hurry. A work friend offered me his yacht as a temporary measure. I'd loved it. Charlie had been my neighbour in the marina, We'd bonded over a love of Guinness and classic rock and would sit exchanging stories from our respected lives. He, an ex-merchant Navy seaman, me, a touring theatre technician. Different worlds, but surprisingly similar experiences. We'd exchanged a few messages during lockdown. Hope you keep him sane and healthy. Yeah, it's all good. Can't wait for the pubs to open. Me too. Can't wait to get away from the house, mate. I hear you, mate. I can't wait to leave the house. An unusually deep level of emotional support there from two blokes in their 50s. July the 4th, the pubs began to reopen and we could meet friends in beer gardens. I get a message from Charlie. Fancy meeting up for a pint? I have a proposition. We met at a country pub that served good beer and nice food, exchanged fist bumps in lieu of handshakes and settled in for a pleasant afternoon. We chatted about what had been going on in the world in general and our worlds in particular. I told him about my toxic housemate. He told me about his ailing mother. I told him I was looking for a new place to live as it was driving me mental. And he told me he was selling his yacht as he needed to spend more time caring for his mom. This took us to his proposition. If I could help him prepare the boat for selling, he'd give me first refusal and a mate's rate price. I figured it would still be too expensive for me, but the work sounded fun. And so for a couple of weeks, we worked together, cleaning, repairing, painting, the more time I spent away from the oppressive miasma in my flats, the more I realised I needed my own space, my own projects, my own potential anecdote. So here I am, six months on, sitting on a boat, 47 years old, 33 feet long, catch rigged, a bit dilapidated and needed some attention. The boat, that is, not me. I'm 55. I've been around the block a few times and made a questionable life choice or two. But I'm feeling pretty positive. 
it'll be summer soon. I have some cans of cider in the fridge and a desire to sail off in search of pastures new. Thank you. Oh, thank you. What a fantastic story. And it's so lovely to see um, the inside of your boat. How long have you been living on it now? It's uh, roughly five or six months. I moved in around about October time. So, um, Where do you think you might like to sail over the summer? When I get the chance, I'm having lessons in how to sail. So I'll be going out and uh, sailing around to Eastbourne or down to Southampton. And, and then eventually I'd like to uh, sail over to France and maybe turn right and head around the coast. Thanks so much, Paul. Bon voyage wherever you head off to. We wish you well. And I think that was the first time a Tamba 9 story has been told from a boat. So there you go. And you can see Paul telling that story from the boat on our YouTube channel, where you can watch practically all the stories from our Zoom events in bite-sized chunks going right back to April of last year. Okay, next up, she's become a regular contributor to 10 by 9 since we moved to Zoom. It's Gita Meaton, who was speaking from her home in Scotland. If you are unfortunate enough to be born into a medical family, there are two distinct ways in which your early years play out, at least in terms of your healthcare needs. Either you're ignored until a vital organ is actually hanging out, or every sneeze and sniffle is just a sign of impending hospitalisation and an early grave. My pathologist dad was an expert in a whole lot of serious stuff at a cellular level that most of us couldn't dream of understanding. And his specialty was male genital pathology, meaning he could look at a slice of your testicle under the microscope and tell the difference between the kind of cells that would kill you and the kind that wouldn't. But he hadn't seen a live patient for many long years. So the diagnostic options were either it's probably a bug, have some toast, or some rare disease he'd seen at a conference once in 1973. It made for an exciting childhood, swinging between benign neglect and sheer panic. So when we had our daughter, I was determined to never attempt to be her doctor and just to stick to my mothering role as best I could. I would take her to the GP when she was ill. I would never diagnose her or treat her myself. And I would never, ever either overreact or ignore her symptoms. She got through infancy pretty unscathed. Though I did misdiagnose her chickenpox as a completely different virus, the clue should have been in the distribution of the pox on her hands, feet and mouth, which made hand, foot and mouth disease a bit more likely. She was a sweet weasel with wispy blonde hair and enormous blue eyes and her favourite things were accessories and baby dolls, ignoring my tasteful natural wood toys and organic crayons in favour of plastic necklaces layered in multicoloured hoops Disney princess dress up high heels and a selection of babies who slept in rows in the living room with their creepy little eyes following us around the room of an evening. Her favourite was the anatomically correct baby boy doll we bought her when her little brother was born and she'd delight in undressing him to show visitors that he had a penis like her new sibling. There was an awkward stage when she'd asked me whether strangers in coffee shops had penises or vaginas. At about age five, though, like most primary school kids happily sharing smitches and sneezes, she got a virus. The usual thing with a slight temperature, a scratchy throat, a bit grumpy and listless. It was a surprise then when this run of the mill snotty episode turned into something a bit more scary. Over 24 hours or so I watched as she started to wheeze. Her cough rattled and whooped. 
Each intake of breath was accompanied by whistles and squeaks as it pushed through tightening airways. I pumped my blue asthma inhaler into her through the spacer tube. Two puffs, then four, no improvement. Six puffs, then eight, nothing. 10 puffs, still the tightness increased. And as I watched, my bright little one was fading. The notch at the top of her sternum was pulling in. The skin under her tiny ribs sucked upwards with each in-breath and her stomach working hard to force her chest wall to move. I started to feel a little worried. I counted her breath, distracting her with cartoons on the TV. 45 over a minute. I held the fragile cage of her wrist in my hand, two fingers over her pulse. 130. I started to feel a little more worried. But it was a Saturday afternoon and I didn't want to bother the stretched out of hours GP service and I'd be embarrassed if I was overreacting and besides I knew how to manage this. I just needed a nebulizer which would turn the airway opening medicine into steam to more easily reach her lungs and some tiny pink uh, prednisolone tablets to reduce the inflammation. I could handle this. Only I'd left my emergency bag in the office on Friday evening and I had nothing helpful to hand. Luckily, Gillian, a GP colleague, lived down the street and she had her bag at home. Now, most medics are good at looking calm when we're not. We learn early on that fear is as viral as COVID-19. And so in an emergency, it's part of your job to put on the mask and stay outwardly serene. When you walk into the relative's room to have the worst kind of hard conversation, they need you to be the one in control as they fall apart. When you're in crisis, you need to swallow the pill of panic down as far as you can and keep your head clear. It's a great strategy, until it isn't. My husband, well-known peace lover, had no idea that that was one of my special skills. He'd seen me panic about lost car keys and tax returns many a time, but this was something new. He could see Emily wasn't well, but my gentle tone and calm demeanour allowed him to relax and let me get on with tending to the patient while he mowed the lawn. So when I called him in to ask gently if he'd mind popping down the street to Gillian's house to collect some supplies, he wasn't feeling the urgency. Lawnmower returned to the shed, he ambled off down Hill Street and I waited. Watching her chest struggle in and out, feeling her pulse speed, asking her silly questions to keep her awake, as the effort of keeping her blood oxygenated tired her more and more. And I waited. 10 minutes passed. 15. 30. Where on earth was he? I grabbed my phone. Uh, honey, anything wrong? It's just that we're kind of waiting here. All ah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gillian asked me in for coffee, so we've just been having a wee catch-up. Bloody hell, <laughs> keeping my voice soft so as not to terrify the gasping child beside me on the sofa. Oh, lovely. Well, if you're finished, perhaps you could just potter back up the street. Uh, we could really do with some of that medication now, but only if you finish, sweetheart. I think it was the sweetheart that did it, because I've never in my life called him that before or since. It's the equivalent of me at work picking up the phone to reception and asking gently, ah, would someone please mind calling 999 and bringing me the emergency bag and some oxygen, please. Thank you very much. He did come back up the road, wiping biscuit crumbs out of his beard. I dissolved the bitter pink tablets in some blackcurrant juice and tied the plastic mask around her tiny grey face 
allowing the stream of salbutamol to spread through the network of our lungs, calming and relaxing them. And mercifully, we watched her breathing slow and settle. And so did mine. I'd been holding my breath with her, it seemed. Her colour returned and she asked for some cereal and sea babies. So, as it turns out, viruses are tricksy wee buggers. I'm in the first doctor parent category, likely to ignore your viral induced acute severe asthma until you're in danger of respiratory arrest. And sweetheart is excellent marital shorthand for you need to do something now. I just don't think I'll be using it at work. Oh, Gita, you have such a gift. You make us laugh and then you have us at the edge of our seats wondering what is going to happen to that poor child. And you paint that picture of the child struggling for breath so brilliantly. Oh, thank you. Seriously, you should have slapped that man. I know. <laughs> no, it's all very well being peaceful, isn't it? But seriously, dude. Seriously, dude, indeed. Thanks so much, Gita. You've been a bright spot in this lockdown. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. If you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. And now, here's our third story. It was another first-timer, and he too was at home, this time in London. We were delighted to welcome Sukhdeep Singh. So, in January last year, I was high above the Mediterranean, sitting with my tray table upright and my seatbelt fastened. As the first bunch of people in Wuhan were probably wondering why their new persistent cuff wouldn't go away, I was flying back to my hometown in central India to see my grandfather off uh, for the last time. You see, like a true hipster, he'd contracted a dangerous virus before the other celebrity dangerous virus had gone viral in the world. He had contracted viral pneumonia and was on the ventilator. Sitting on the plane, all I could think of was a memory of his hands holding mine as I had left for London for the first time a few years ago. He had large, calloused, but soft hands, the creased skin draped over a tangle of blue veins. He was born a Sikh in 1930 in Punjab in a village amid rolling wheat fields as far as the eye can see. He started tilling the fields with his father from a young age, old enough to be a capable farmhand, but still young enough to gawk as British soldiers passing by in convoys threw candy at him and the other children if they waved a V back at them for victory. His name, Trilok, means the three realms. At the age of 17, he witnessed hell on his doorstep as the British partitioned India and two million people died. Around 10 times that were displaced. One of the millions of refugees of the partition was a woman he got married to a year later, my grandmother. Together, they moved to a village in central India, trading golden fields for lush green forests. The new village was barely a few huts and a big banyan tree in the middle for, for town square. He talked his way into a job as a forest officer. On one of his commutes into work, he came face to face with the forest's original tenant, the majestic Bengal tiger. My grandfather froze, more out of fear than anything else, I think. 
After a brief stare down, the tiger left, seemingly uninterested. Street smart and crafty, he cut quite a figure in the village in his favorite outfit, white tunic, white trousers, white shoes, and an electric blue turban. Somewhere along the way, he had picked up a fondness for letter writing. This is a trait I have gladly inherited. I love sending and receiving letters. Seeing that there was no post office in the village, my grandfather set about to write this wrong. He would spend the day working in the forest, and at night, by lamplight, he would write his letters to the government. These he would hand deliver to the post office in the nearest city by bicycle, 70 kilometers away. For months, he wrote to them asking for a hospital, a school, and a police station. His persistence bore fruit, and not long after, a very nice man from the state capital came over with assurances to build one cement road, an electricity line to the village, and a post office. Oh, and there was also a strongly worded request to kindly stop sending letters to the prime minister's office. My grandfather was ecstatic. He now moved to the city and bought a loading truck with the money he had saved. He transported all manner of things throughout India from melons to mangoes and bangles to bicycles. During the 1984 Sikh genocide, where thousands uh, of Sikhs were hunted down and killed, he smuggled terrified families in and out of the city by hiding them under a bed of sand. A year later, his son, the eldest of five, five children, died of tuberculosis. He grieved, and then he threw himself back into work and more trucks. By the age of 60, he felt as if he had provided for his flock, having built a small but prosperous family business from nothing, and with all his children married off. But an easy retirement was not on the cards. Like a comic book villain, my uncle turns on him and my father and absconded with all the hard-earned wealth. This broke my grandfather's heart, although he never pressed charges or uttered a word in protest at the hand that had been dealt. He just started again from scratch. I moved to London for work five years ago, and my father and I never quite got along very well, but every Sunday my grandfather would call and show affection and care in a very Indian way. He would ask me when I was going to get married, when I was going to give him great-grandchildren because time was running out, and how terrible it would be if he died without playing with my children. And did I want that on my conscience? As you can imagine, that wasn't a very successful strategy. I went straight to the hospital last year to see him, and after a quick series of family hugs, I walked into the harsh lights of the intensive care unit. The smell of sickness, sterility, and the sounds of medical machinery and heart rate monitors watched over me. There he was in a corner bed, more tubes and needles than flesh. As he came to, I took his hands in mine. His hands were soft, as I'd remembered. He looked at me through eyes tired beyond exhaustion and started sobbing silently, the ventilator tube trembling. One of his lungs had completely collapsed. The other was failing rapidly, and the rest of his organs were in free fall. All dysfunctional families are wonderfully weird in their own way. In mine, I am usually tasked with taking decisions like this one. I knew what he wanted. We had discussed it several times over the past few years. I talked to the doctors, and we brought him home. And I sat by his side in the last few hours of his life, my hand firmly clasped in his as he whispered goodbyes to his children, 
grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He was calm. Around 4 p.m. that afternoon, he began breathing his last. The nurse asked urgently if I wanted to follow through with resuscitation. I said no. As Terry Pratchett once remarked, no one is finally dead until the ripples they cause in the world die away, until the clock wound up winds down, until the wine they made has finished its ferment, until the crop they planted is harvested. The span of someone's life is only the core of the actual existence. My grandfather had responded with contentment, hope, and even joy in situations when surely the only sensible course to me would have been to despair. He was a complicated man. I miss him more than I remember him. And what I remember most is his voice, a deep baritone that could make 10-year-old me laugh as easily as it could instill a primal sense of fear when he bellowed in anger. In my childhood, his voice served as a wake-up gong at the ungodly hour of 5 a.m. each morning. Barely alive, I'd stagger after him, holding his hand as he led me to the little prayer room in our house, where we would sit cross-legged on the floor and he would read me from scripture. Next up would be yoga at six, where I would break out in sweats and contortions, trying to emulate the grace, focus, and equanimity of this grand old man. What a beautiful story. My God, you've introduced us so warmly to your grandfather. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Thank you for I love, me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I love the image of him um, with that electric blue turban. It sounds <laughs> like I can see him. Yeah, yeah he, he wore that until the very end. Every day, every day without fail, he would wear that like a uniform. <laughs> And letter writing. Do you have letters that he sent you? He no. He he made me write letters uh, of uh, commitment. So if I so I would say he would tell me to you know do well in my exams, and then I would say oh yes I, I'll you know I'll I'll try and get ninety percent, and he would say okay write me a letter saying that you <laughs> would, and and you'll seal it and then we'll open it. Oh so I, yeah, I have those, and he signed, and I signed those. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And you you keep writing letters now. I do, yeah, yeah. I, I just, I think, I think it's, it's an absolutely wonderful thing to do, especially, it's, I think, especially in pandemic. I think there's something yeah. so considered and examined about, about writing to someone and re reading yeah. that sort of effort. In yeah, so yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you have introduced us to your grandfather, which is a beautiful thing, and you've also introduced us to you. And we hope this is the first of many stories you get to hear from you. So, please, thank you so oh, much. Thank you. Beautiful story. You, wonderful. I think Podrick said it for us all. Thank you, Sukhdeep, for introducing us to your grandfather. What a man. And that is pretty much it for this podcast. If you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10 by 9com and get in touch. We are always, and I can't stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. I'm going to ask a small favour too. If you enjoy the podcast, could you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 and give us a rating and maybe even a short review. It helps get us noticed. Or just drop us a line to say hello to our email address, story at 10by9.com, or via the usual social media channels. We love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out Podrick's new project, The Corimila Podcast, where recently he interviewed The Edge from YouTube, and you can get it at the usual podcasty places. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed, and published by Paul Doran. So blame me. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.